Good morning. My mom was a big fan of the royal family. I kind of connected in my mind with her love and fearsome guardianship over the English language. Like a mother bear whose cub is under threat from the deadly wiles of teenagers lazily typing things like, me and my friends are going to the mall. <clears throat> Marg was not someone of the view that language is a living, changing thing, given constant new form by how people use it. Sure, she could abide the Oxford English Dictionary adding a couple new words every year, following developments in technology and other things. But orthography and grammar, these are fixed rules of being in the world. We don't define them, they define us. And if someone doesn't follow them exactly, it's a sign of a much more profound depravity. Probably, probably terminal. <clears throat> this is all to be compared with my dad, whose English was not so much a second language to Plautdeutsch as really just a sanitized version of it. <clears throat> my mom somehow knew the names, the titles, and the relevant gossip of all the members of the royal family. And she tried to impart a lot of that knowledge to me. For example, when we watched Princess Di's funeral together. But the only things I cared about were seeing Pavarotti there, and then hearing this performance of John Tavener's Song for Athene, which really took the whole thing out of royalist sentimentality into something pretty powerful, for me at least that last crescendo, weeping at the grave creates the song, Alleluia, that is not kitschy. My mom did pass on to me or drill into me her stuck upness about language, but I never got the royal thing. And these days it's very hard for me to think of Queen Elizabeth II as anything other than the head or former head of a global colonial enterprise. A centuries-long process of converting the planet and peoples and cultures and what should be public commons all into resources for capitalist growth. And doing this all while acting out these shows of charity to come off as some kind of philanthropists, like John D. Rockefeller. I'm listening to a podcast right now called Drilled uh, on how Rockefeller built this empire of standard oil, which has now become ExxonMobil, through a horrible exploitation of his workers who were forced to live and spend all their money in these company towns so that their rent and grocery purchases and everything went back into Rockefeller's pockets. And then when a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of them finally protested and started living in an encampment off-site, 
Rockefeller got the National Guard to come in with machine guns and they started just shooting into the encampment, injuring a ton of people and killing 22, including family members and children. But Rockefeller hired this publicity guru, Ivy Ledbetter Lee, who has since become known as the father of public relations and who, quote, coached Rockefeller on how to talk, how to behave in public, to make himself likable, one of the people, which charitable projects to take on. And when Rockefeller died, he was remembered as a kindly philanthropist, a hardworking industrialist, and a true blue American." End quote. It's this same company, ExxonMobil, who, by the way, owns one of Canada's biggest oil companies, Imperial Oil, which is now testifying to Congress about why they promote themselves as pursuing net zero emissions, while behind closed doors, they continue to invest in campaigns of disinformation and climate denial. In the same vein, it is certainly hard to resist this image of the royal family as this harmless, daughtery old custodian of good manners and proper English when in truth they bear an enormous responsibility for the current condition of their colonies, the cultural genocide of indigenous peoples, and a global capitalist system that oppresses and exploits the vast majority of working people so that a very few can continue to amass billions. In 2019, 26 people owned the same wealth as the poorer half of the world. The set of scriptures collected for the lectionary this morning speak of a world that is in many ways similar to our own. It is a world of tremendous inequality, and several of these passages express the lament of those who are struggling in poverty. A passage we didn't include in the reading from Jeremiah says, quote, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick. Hark, the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt, I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. And then there's Amos, which we did here. Amos lived way back in the 8th century BCE during the long and peaceful reign of King Jeroboam II. My Oxford annotated Bible says that, quote, in this period, Israel attained a height of territorial expansion and national prosperity never again reached. At the same time, this is still my Bible. This prosperity led to gross inequities between urban elites and the poor. Through the manipulation of debt and credit, wealthy landowners amassed capital and estates at the expense of small farmers. 
the smallest debt served as the thin end of a wedge that lenders could use to separate farmers from their patrimonial farms and personal liberty, end quote. Amos was a shepherd from a small village who saw the plight of his countrymen and the exploitative practices and lavish wealth of the elite, who, he says in 2 verse 7, trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. And so he drops what he's doing and goes to speak his truth to the highest offices in the land, prophesying that ruin will come to this mighty nation unless it looks after its poor and weak. There's a great passage just before the one that we read where Amaziah, the high priest of Bethel, starts getting ticked off with Amos's proclamations. This is verse 10. <clears throat> then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it's a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son. I am but a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be parceled out by line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Just fearless stuff. And really, who today has heard of the name Amaziah, that high priest? Or even Jeroboam, that king of Israel at its greatest extent? And yet here, almost 3,000 years later, my elementary school, Keatsway, in Waterloo, sits right beside Amos Avenue, named after a shepherd who spoke up for the poor. There's some kind of justice in that. And then there is our parable from Luke of this manager or steward who at the prospect of getting fired starts forgiving the debts to his rich master. He had been tasked with extracting all the profit he could from the poorer farmers or merchants indebted to his master. Poor workers already squeezed dry of everything they could produce, nothing left for themselves. But 
this manager was failing in his task, called to answer to his master for not bringing in enough profit, for squandering the capital of land and assets. And he knows this is the end for him. If he's kicked out of the bureaucracy without even the skills to work the land, he's faced with destitution, inevitable disease, and likely death. He has obviously worked hard to get as far as he has. He's played the game as best as he could. But this is a game whose rules favor only those at the top, and everyone else is eventually expendable. But something happens. In his encounter with his firing and with his own death, all of a sudden those rules no longer seem set in stone. He sees them in the context of a higher purpose and realizes that he can use his position in the economic pyramid not to continue the transfer of wealth to the top, but to lighten the burden of others to befriend them, to give them some dignity as human beings. And I tell you, Luke says, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. What a compelling statement. This story sheds light on the passage in Matthew, where Jesus tells the wealthy man, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. There in Matthew, it seems as though we're called to abandon all wealth, all possessions, if we're to follow Jesus. Really, an impossible calling if we're married, if we have a family, etc. It's stepping outside of the world altogether. But here in Luke, you realize that money sure can be the root of evil. When Luke talks about dishonest wealth here, I believe he means that all wealth is dishonest because it's always part of a system of inequality. If I have more money, it means someone else has less. And there are eras in human self. It's only evil if it becomes our sole aim in life. It can be used for good. When Jesus asks us to give our money to the poor, it doesn't mean just get rid of our money. It means seek out friendship. Seek out dignity. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And even these monstrous systems on earth can reflect how it is in heaven. Looking to the kingdom isn't necessarily at the expense of our own security. The manager ends up keeping his job after all. But it's also not at the expense of others' security. Everyone is better off. Let it be so also when it comes to monarchies. If we're going to continue to be under a king, let it be for the good, to counter the very inequalities the monarchy helped create, so that we can say with Timothy, may prayers, 
intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone, even for kings and those in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. There is one Messiah, Jesus Christ, and only he can save. But there are also kings and queens that sometimes can do a pretty good job of keeping the peace. And to that extent, let us give unto Caesar what is owed to Caesar. Let us give thanks where it is due. Without the patronage of Charles the Bald, the Holy Roman Emperor in the ninth century, I would never have had Eriugena's Paraphysion, the focus of my dissertation, to work on. And without the patronage of the firm, as Harry and Meghan call the royal family, see, I do know some of their names, I would never probably have heard Tavener's song for Athene. But that doesn't mean we need to follow rules that only benefit them, rules of economics, that create a handful of billionaires and a planet of the poor, rules of language that draw uncrossable boundaries between insiders and outsiders, rules of decorum that would keep Amos in his place. We can let ourselves be moved by the beauty of the funeral proceedings this coming Monday but still raise our voices like the man in the crowd this past Friday during the new King Charles visit to Wales, who called out, Charles, while we struggle to heat our homes, we have to pay for your parade. Amen. <laughs>